eat. What color should we paint our living room? It requires wisdom, doesn't it? Not just choices, but wisdom. Now, certain acts and choices that require wisdom, certain decisions, certain thoughts, certain things, require wisdom to a different degree. Sometimes we can gain wisdom and say, hey, what kind of paint did you use? Was it good? Oh, great. Okay. Well, I used terrible paint, and it peeled off after 30 days. And we gain wisdom through other people's experiences. But when we're talking about the wisdom of the Lord, when we're talking about Christ who is our righteousness, we need to make sure that we're staying in the context of what spiritual wisdom is. And that we're not equivocating the idea of just, you know, wise choices, you know, yada, 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 Christian faith's all the same. It's not the same. As a matter of fact, I think, I think some of the areas in our lives where we lack wisdom is when we start to think that Christ has become just a subset of doctrines and teachings rather than being the God of eternity. Almost to the point where I've, I've almost decided that, and I do this now when I speak, especially to those in an evangelistic way, I don't use the term gospel anymore. I just say good news. I just say good news. The good news of Jesus Christ because it speaks to the wisdom who is Christ. The wisdom of God who is the person of Christ. Christ is salvation. Christ is righteousness. Christ is wisdom, says Paul. And so when I'm telling of Christ, I'm telling the good news of Christ. I'm not because people have this lack of wisdom and they have determined that the point of gospel is some type of doctrinal thing. It's a proclamation. Jesus is not a doctrine. Jesus is the one teaching of himself. The gospel is the story of who Christ is and what God has promised in order to redeem his people in His righteousness, in His justice, through the person of Jesus Christ. So the teaching of the gospel is the good news, is to tell of the news of Jesus that is good. You see how subtle we can get gobbled up in other things? We think the gospel can be a tract, or that the gospel can, you know check a box, or that the gospel could come down an aisle, or that the gospel could be all sorts of different things. The gospel is not anything but the word of God who is Jesus Christ, the righteous whom the apostles wrote and the prophets wrote of. And that is how God has revealed his redemption to us. In 3 John, we have these characters. We have John, of course, the elder, the apostle, the old elder apostle, the only one living at the time of this writing. And he's writing because he loves the body. He loves the body. He loves the truth. Why does he love the truth? Because Christ is the truth. He doesn't love the data of Christ. He doesn't love the details of Christ. He doesn't love the idea of Christ. He loves Christ. He loves Christ. And for some of us, we may be thinking, oh, what are you talking about? I pray that the Lord will grant you understanding. Because I do believe that in the way people receive the Word of God, by and large, can show us as to where they are in Christ. Because the Spirit of God will teach us, and He will teach us in the spirit of humility. And Christ teaches through the spirit of authority. As he would say oftentimes in John's gospel, I do not come to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And when I leave, I will send another, the one that comes alongside you. And he will teach you all things. That's what he tells the apostles. You won't have to worry about remembering everything I've taught you. I will cause you to remember all things. So that when the apostles wrote their letters... And they wrote the doctrines concerning Christ, the story of the good news of Jesus, for our benefit and for our joy, and in those gospel narratives, for the salvation of the elect. We know that we can trust what's written here. We know that we can trust what has been shown to us. But see, herein lies the problem. A lot of times we say we trust the teachings that we know, but we do not trust the person to whom they point. 
We say we rest in these understandings of things, but we do not rest in the one who displays himself through these things. And beloved, you maybe think I'm splitting hairs. You may be thinking that this is some issue of semantics or looking from one side to the, you know, half one way. What is it? They, what is it? Half a dozen, six one way, half a dozen the other. No, this is seeing Christ and knowing him versus just being a student of some information about him, which is 90% of the professors I had in all of my seminary. Losses of ball and high weeds, loved the teachings, loved the stuff, loved the studies, loved the languages, but could not give you any sense in which they had been given by the Spirit of God the ability to rest in the person of Jesus Christ and His finished work for them. And some people will come and say, well, what am I supposed to do about it? You're supposed to hear the Word of God. And as a Believer with the same spirit, you will not listen to the flesh when the word of God confronts it. You will say, oh, wow, I'm listening to my flesh. I need to stop. And I just don't believe people read the word of God enough. And I don't believe I read the word of God enough. And I don't believe that we read the word of God in light of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. We could go through Genesis chapter 1 and we could look at the apostolic writing to show what its meaning and what its purpose was in the very beginning. There's a large subsect of our culture who think that Genesis 1 is supposed to fight and attack the scientific community. God forbid it. Has nothing to do with science. Has nothing to do with how we're supposed to understand biology and evolution and all these other things. Has everything to do with God sending His Son into the world. You realize Genesis is a very long book. With three paragraphs about God said let there be and there was. Because that is the bookend of redemption beginning. And is. John would say in the Greek, in the beginning of all things, when things began, God was, you see. Well, marriage is about populating the earth, and marriage is about, you know, making good citizens, and marriage is about good economy and, 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 and capitalism. No, it's not. Marriage is a temporary shadow, just like the showbread in the, in the, in the, in the, in the temple, of an eternal picture who is Jesus Christ in reality. Marriage is temporary shadow. God created man, gave woman to man, and that is about Jesus Christ. Don't believe me? Then you don't believe God. Because God's Word says it, Paul says it very clearly. I say this mystery is profound, and the creation of man and the creation of woman to become one flesh is so that God could show the origins of all things redemptive. And it's temporary. It's temporary. The only thing that's eternal is the Word of God. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Folks, we're not going to walk around with ESVs in eternity. <laughs> or King James. <laughs> or the Nestle Island version 300,262. Greek. We're not going to have all that. We're going to be with the living Word. And so John writes this teeny tiny sentence or two. He is expressing great things with the foundation of the gospel clearly in check. Clearly in check. So in the only way we can really understand John's writing and his heart and his purposes and what he doesn't say, which is as important as what he does say in some sense, is to know the gospel. And the gospel is not distinctions against other gospels. The gospel is distinct from other gospels. False gospels. False teaching. The gospel is not an evangelical truth. The gospel is Christ. The gospel is the evangel. The word evangel is... The word good news, that we say gospel. We need to listen to the word of God. Why? For the sake of our joy, for the sake of the glory of his name. Well, I'm glorifying God because I'm 
stomping my feet. You're not glorifying God by stomping your feet. We don't glorify God by stomping our feet. We don't glorify God by being intimidating. We don't glorify God by getting our own way. Ever. The scripture is full of wisdom. And part of that wisdom teaches us that we should remain quiet and listen. Part of that wisdom teaches us that we should remain calm. That song we just sang, I love it. It's one of my favorite hymns in the book. Be still my soul. The scripture teaches us that wisdom listens and carefully understands, seeks understanding. The, The scripture teaches us that wisdom seeks reconciliation. You know what it looks like? If we, get, if we go to Solomon, if we go to, um, to Proverbs and we see some of the writing there, we see that God teaches that wisdom doesn't look to tell everybody what's wrong, but it listens. Because when we feel like we have to say something, we're probably unwise in that. If we have to say something, it proves we're American. We have to say something. We don't have to say anything. Who are we? We are not God. And to see that James has to fix a problem is to say that God is unable to fix a problem if I don't act. And this little old church, John loved them dearly. He loved them dearly. And when you look at John's writing, you look at Peter, you look at even James. And we're there midweek. I pray that you're staying on top of that. It's important to us as a body. When you you read, you know, Paul and others, even Jude, we see all of their joy. And their joy is not in the elimination of problems. Their joy is never like, I'm so joyful now, I haven't had to deal with anything in months. Because if our joy comes from not having problems, our joy is sunk already. There's a huge Western idealistic humanism that invades. I'll say this. It invades our very thinking. And that thinking is that if something's wrong, if something is out of place according to what the standard that we think it should be. If something is uh, a little bit stressful, um, then it's bad. That's bad. And then we respond. You know what the root word of that is? Selfish. It's selfish. That's selfishness. That's selfishness because it's completely myopic. It's completely introspective. It's completely looking at what I think should be happening. It's not happening and what I want to happen. So if it, unless that happens, then I can't be joyful. That's selfish. And beloved, we do it everywhere, don't we? We do it with everything. It's innate to us unless we're just really gifted by our personality. I even know unbelievers who have this great, stoic personality like that doesn't matter it's fine I'm not that way it's fine I may say it's fine but that means God Almighty has got it in his hand so it's okay but the fire in the screen behind the stoic face is unbearable (laughs) and John there were some real problems here in this church John was like I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Gaius, you have made my day. You have given me great joy because I see you walking in the truth. I see you loving the brothers and the sisters. I see you helping the evangelist. I see you doing the work of the ministry, not railroading this entire body because of Diotrephes who has damaged 90% of the entire church. Now, if you think about that. In large churches, oh goodness, churches that are in the thousands in attendance, one stinker can make a big mess. Two stinkers can tear things apart, but three can kill everybody in there. You don't believe me? 
Three people, single-handedly, split a church of 2,300 people in 2002. Three people. Because they didn't get their way. Or one didn't. One didn't get his way. And he found two other people to join his side. And within four days, they'd called and visited. Not evangelistically. Not for ministry. They'd never done that for the sake of seeing on, checking on people. But boy, when they had a bone to pick, they learned to pick them. And they went and picked the bones out of everybody they could find. And the damage was done. And we had a large meeting one night. And the senior pastor is standing up there. And he's trying to get everybody just to listen and to talk. And when a decision was made, a group of people by and large, a group of people en masse began to cheer and put their hands in the air. Because they had defeated the knuckleheads. And I ran out the back door thinking I was about to throw up for two reasons. One is that I was this close to cheering myself. And I didn't know that was in me. And secondly, I saw that just how easy it is for God's body to be destroyed in the context of our relationships. That is why wisdom wins. Christ wins. Christ in his redemption always wins, no matter what we do. He cannot lose us. We cannot be lost, beloved. No matter how hard we try, we cannot separate ourselves from the love of God. And we live in an American culture where the idea of church is nothing but a spectator investment anyway. I go to church, I come to church, I went to church, I'm going to church. No, we're not. We are the body. And we do assemble. See, our vernacular is even screwed up, isn't it? Wisdom. The flesh tells us that we need to make much to do about all the things that are wrong. And it doesn't mean that we don't call them out. Beloved, we are called. Listen, the scripture teaches the body of Christ to patiently, lovingly, and humbly point out problems. <laughs> not like police officers. Not like, oh, I see you. You know what I'm saying? But, hmm, let me see what's really happening over here. We don't know what's going on. This looks like something. Let's inquire. What do you mean by that? Why are you acting this way? And some things are black and white. We don't sweep sin under the rug. We don't sweep false doctrine under the rug. We don't do that. But there is a manner in which we do call it out. There is a way in which it must be done. And the first thing and the most important thing is that we do not in any way do anything that's detrimental to the whole of the unity of the body. Diotrephes, if he were in our church, I promise you we would be having meetings a lot about diotrephes because that's the way we do it in America, right? We've got Sunday. We probably can't even worship today. Because we're all upset about diatrophies. When are we going to do something about diatrophies? What was the apostles, what was God's remedy for diatrophies? To raise up a man like Gaius to continue in the body to do the work of the ministry despite diatrophies. Now does that seem weird to us? And some people want to say, well, well diatrophies was lost. We don't know that. Diotrephes was acting lost. What are we to do with a brother who does not commit to being corrected? We kick them out of the church. And what does the apostle say? What does Jesus say? Treat them as an unbeliever, not they are an unbeliever. How do we know if they are a believer? When God restores them back to the church, we know that he has worked in their hearts. And we can say, well, look at there. Their confession is true because they've come back. What did John say in his first letter? What did John say? And he reminded of the church in his second letter. There are some of those who have gone out from among us. They've refused to listen to the apostles. Diotrephes has this same mindset, but he hadn't left. He just left their teaching. Now, it's very easy for us to say, well, only an unbeliever would not listen to the apostles. <laughs> then we're all unbelievers. Yeah, the apostles are authoritative on the doctrines of Christ. The apostles are authoritative on justification. 
the, author, you know, the apostles are authoritative on the resurrection, but they're not authoritative on how I'm supposed to live my life in my house. And they're not authoritative on how I'm supposed to get along with it. They're not authoritative telling me I've got to sit in the seat, subject myself to somebody next to me. Yes, they are. So we do all pick and choose. So not that it's been to that degree of causing willful division and upturning the church's intimacy, but in some sense we're all guilty of being like diatrophies. The very fact that so many times we put ourselves first in our everyday activities and in our weekly activities and in our weekends activities and we don't once contemplate what is best for our soul and best for our brothers and sisters in the faith shows that we put ourselves first. Now the, the answer to that is not, oh, woe is me, guilt, tear our clothes, put ash on our head, throw ourselves down some stairs or off a tractor or whatever else might work. We rest in the sufficiency of Christ. John says when he comes, if he's able, he's going to bring up what Diotrephes is doing because he continues to talk against the apostles and he's not content with just talking. He now refuses to in, in, invite brothers who are evangelists who need food, who need money, who need shelter, who need rest. This is life-changing situation here. But he also is causing such stress that people are scared to even go against him because he has gained the power to put them out of the church somehow. How did that happen? It's not like they were snatching them up and throwing them out the back door. <laughs> but through pressure, through social pressure, people were just like, I can't, I can't do this. And he might have stood up and said, these people don't listen. This is what's right. We're not doing this. Anybody who does this or wants to do this is wrong. We're not having anything to do with them. Then what do you do? Who holds the keys? And what does John call that type of behavior? In any way, for any reason, he calls it evil. And when we're looking at Christ, the wisdom of God, our righteousness, and when we look at who he is and what he's done and what he calls us to. And we're looking at that. We can't be looking at Christ and doing the opposite. Because to do so means we haven't, we're, we haven't seen God, have we? How many, how many people claim, well, not even that. How many times have we heard other people say, oh, that's such a good Christian man, that's such a good Christian woman, because of their benevolence and their kindness and their love toward other people. And you know what? These people are not wrong. That is Christian living. When the cults do better at Christian life than the church, we have problems. But you know where they don't have these problems? West Africa. Philippines. I'm sure they do, but I mean, there are some churches there, some congregations there that I know that they don't, they're not worried about matching socks on Sundays. You ever been there? You didn't know you had so many different pairs and shades of black. Just might just wear this boot for the rest of the year. I don't have to worry about it. Where do you get these ideas from? They're in my life. I have spent 30 minutes trying to find a pair of socks. That might, and the, oh, this one, that sock's a little too tight. I want a thinner sock because I'm going to wear a different shoe today. These are first world problems. Why are y'all laughing? Y'all had the same thing today. You know, or like it used to be. You slip on socks and you're colorblind. You walk out the house like a clown. That's popular today. But John tells us not to imitate evil, but to imitate good. Beloved, we imitate good when we submit to the Word of God. We imitate good when we hold fast to the truth. We imitate good when we say humbly, this is not true, this is wrong behavior, this is what we should believe in new. We imitate the truth when we love one another and we are patient with one another. We imitate the truth when we are subject to the apostles and we join together in the assembly despite how we feel about somebody else next to us. That is one of the greatest evils of our day, is someone who says that they are truly in the faith but refuses fellowship because of someone else in the proximity of those in the faith. 
Self-excommunication. It is a wicked thing. And it doesn't mean that people shouldn't be leaving churches. I have that conversation with folks all the time. In fact, <laughs> even recently I've had that conversation with a couple of people. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting for? I don't know. Well, may the Lord give you wisdom. May the Lord give you wisdom. There's a time to depart, but it's not in haste, not in fear, but it's a calculated, wise choice. Because the ultimate issue that John is writing is not to bring up Diotrephes. As a matter of fact, that's not even the context of this, is it? It's the fact that Gaius is doing what is right and Demetrius is praising God for it and giving credit to the Lord for the ministry he received. And I said this last week. But this is not how we work in our culture. We don't work in our culture about praise God for the word that was preached for me and to me. And I learned this and I grew here. Praise God for the prayers of the saints who helped me here. Praise God for the encouragement I received from brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so last week when we gathered. Because what it did is God used it to remind me of his power and sovereignty. Praise God for the fact that when I was without a job, people brought me groceries and paid my mortgage. Praise God when I was sick or I was imprisoned or things were not well or my marriage was on the rocks. That the body of Christ came around me. You don't hear those testimonies. But you hear the testimony. Yeah, I went over there and nobody talked to me. Well, there's a guy up there that don't look like I think he ought to look. I'm going to meet a woman that sounds like that one day or a man that sounds like the one that goes, you've been mocking me your whole life. Yeah. That's just the old country nag. Hey, you know what's going on in that church? Pastor doesn't do anything about false teaching. Liar. Whoever says that is a liar from, from the devil. They're liars. But isn't that, what, isn't that what liars do? Diotrephes was a problem, but the testimony from Demetrius was not about Diotrephes. It was not about the problem. The gospel is not what the Jews did to under, under uh, you know, to try to usurp the authority of God. The gospel is not about their unbelief. The gospel is not about what Moses has given. The gospel is about who Christ is. Peace be to you, John says in verse 15 of this letter, the friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. So even in John's closing, he is saying, Hey, beloved, love one another, greet each other, the peace of the Lord is with you. Now I want us all to turn to John chapter 1. Because you can't get out of John's letters, and of course, I preached, no, I didn't really preach, I did a reading of Revelation in 2016 or 17. And it's a short series, about 27 sermons. Then one day I might do exposition of Revelation, but it won't be any time in the next few years. But I think it would be appropriate for us to go all the way back to the beginning of John's whole purposes of writing everything and go back to the prologue of John's gospel, the first 18 verses, and specifically verse 17. 16 and 17 and 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord in John chapter 1 all the way through verse 18. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. True light, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own people. 
and they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, verse 12, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the decision of the mind, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. Verse 16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, we have spent a lot of time in that text some years ago. We spent a lot of time in that text. And I don't know how many sermons we spent, but I can promise you this, we didn't spend enough. We did not spend enough in this gospel presentation, in this gospel proclamation, in this gospel uh, just, just amazing Amazing gospel picture in one of the purest and simplest ways that you'll ever see it. This is clearer than Ephesians 1. It's clearer than Colossians 1. It's clearer than everything because everything that has to do with everything redemptive is right here. Beloved, remember when we went through John's gospel and I kept saying that everything that John wrote and in the manner and the order in which he wrote it and the things that he emphasized in his writing, he pulled them out in the outline of John 1. 1 through 18, that it is the outline of the entire gospel letter and that everything that we see falls in this teaching. Well, beloved, his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, are no different. The gospel is the foundation of, this, of these writings. And the church and its business is about the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel and the gospel ministry, the ministry of good news to each other because Christ has given His ministry to us. And we have all these debates and all this stuff that takes place. And beloved, we don't, by the Lord's mercy, have diatrophies in our fellowship. But we all have the propensity... To be like him. We all have the opportunity to get real selfish and to get real flustered and to get real aggravated and to get real broken and to get real fearful. And those emotions are real and they're important and they're vital. We pay attention to them. But I've seen recently that people's conscience is greater than God. The scripture says that our heart is deceitful above all things. It is inherently wicked and depraved. And so though we may have a conscience that tells us, I wonder if this is pleasing to the Lord, beloved, we don't live in fear because of lack of wisdom. We ask for it. And then that was my sermon this past Wednesday. And God, without reproach, gives freely to those who trust Him in that asking. It's funny though, we trust in the gospel and the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus, but oftentimes we don't trust in the gospel of the power of Jesus. The divine power of God that gives us all we need for life and godliness, as Peter would say. And we're not talking about transformative power to be something better. We're talking about the subtle reality of resting in the faith that God has hand, is, going, is handling and handling and going to handle all of our circumstances. And that God is sovereign and that everything, 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 a piece of dirt flies in your eye on the way out today when the tropical winds blow. God is responsible for ordaining that speck of dirt. And beloved, if it doesn't do anything else, it ought to help you be reminded of just how sensitive your eyes are. Just how immaculate your created body is. Just how amazing it is that God can cause you to see spiritually that which you can barely see with your own eyes. (laughs) 
And oftentimes in our world, and I believe it's, it's, it's getting worse, men are smarter than they need to be, rather than being like Paul, who says he'd rather be an idiot. Paul was not a good orator. That was not his thing. He was terrible at it. You ever seen a really bad movie and really bad acting, really bad script writing? And you just, you really want to see the story, but like, give me the wiki. I cannot tolerate it. You know, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I'll read a wiki. I'll turn a movie off, go watch a wiki because I can't stand bad acting. Paul was a bad actor. Paul was a bad teacher in the context of his craft. He says that. I come and I, I don't speak well. But it's not about my power. It's, not, it's about the substance of my message. And I know you want to hear Apollos who stands and says, Ladies, men, brothers, and all, be in all of that which is divine and godly, all before thee this way. Who doesn't want to hear that kind of stuff? I mean, everybody sounds authoritative with a somewhat British accent. I know Paul sounded like Elmer Fudd. Nobody wants to hear that. But you can make a meme out of it. I can see him. I mean, you know, you can see it. Paul was not a professional preacher. Preaching's not about professional. It's about proclamation of that which is absolutely ridiculous until God shows us the truth and then it's absolutely marvelous. And it all points to Christ. See, God created the church to be the glory bearer, the image of Christ, his glory bearer, eternally. We see the book of Genesis. It's the book of beginnings. It's how God created the beginning footprint of redemption. Every bit of it. And it's something that I always try to help people understand is that the gospel in Genesis is not just the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the work and the head of the serpent. That's the definitive act of Christ dying on the cross and his death propitiating, being his, his person being propitiation. He is propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God. But as Jesus says in John 17, that eternal life is knowing the one true God and knowing the Son whom He has sent, knowing Him. We see 50 chapters of Genesis. We see a large text in this Old Testament of beginnings. And we need to understand, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach some out of Genesis Next week. I'm going to preach out of Genesis next week. As we're preparing to get into 1 Timothy. I'm going to preach some Psalms. I'm going to take a few weeks as I study 1 Timothy. And I'm going to do some Old Testament narratives. And when we look at the, the, the very introduction to, the gospel, I mean, to Genesis. The gospel is there from the very beginning. Pun intended. When Moses writes these words, when God through his prophet Moses says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this is to show us, as Paul would say to the Hebrews, we by faith believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We believe by faith that he's done all these things. He's made the preparations. Out of nothing came all things that are. There was nothing. Guess what? There were no people. We don't believe like Latter-day Saints who believe that every soul is like this eternal spirit baby that's plucked off of a tree and then sent down into a body. God creates us. So God created the heavens and the earth and it talks about the formlessness and the void and the darkness that overtook all things. Now picture this for a second now. Why did John use this language in his gospel? Because John is explaining what Genesis is telling And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. That is Christ himself. That is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being able to be seen. God's not creating Jesus. God is creating something to behold Jesus. God is declaring, I will send the light into the world that is dark and formless and void. That's what Genesis 1 is about. 
It's not my philosophy. It is God's, God himself revelation. Jesus, John says it. God says it in John 1. He uses that same phraseology. The same thing that Paul says to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1. This is the point. We see that God has orchestrated His glory to be revealed through the creation of a people for Himself. So therefore, in order for God to have a people for Himself, eternally God decreed He would send His Son to be a human and to be propitiation for people who were not righteous. So therefore, God, in a moment, created the first moment and created the world so that He could save a people out of it. That's why the world exists. We don't, we're not Greek and Roman mythologians, if that's even the right word. I don't think that's right. We don't, we, don't, we don't believe that these gods created all sorts of stuff and things just sort of got out of hand. We don't believe that God intended to create a perfect race of beautiful Garden of Eden forever. Garden of Eve, Eve is, is, is a symbol, just like the temple is a symbol, is a shadow. The garden is a shadow. It was not the eternal point. It's the presence of God in all of His righteousness where God... Where the, God, the Son of God, Jesus, walked in the garden in the cool of the day with His created beings. And they fell. Therefore, they were not worthy to be in the presence of God. But the whole point that they existed is that God would bring them into His presence by grace. Not by law. Not by obedience. There's never life in obedience. Never life in obedience. There's only life... In the life giver, the light who is the life of man. Or the life who is the light of man. And so in John 1, when we see all of this, we see that, in, that, 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 that no one, that no one can see the light unless they're born of God. No one can understand what we're talking about this morning unless the Spirit of God has given them understanding. No one can rest in this truth. No one can know Christ unless God grants them this great truth. So how is it that God is going to grant this great, this great sight by His will and His Spirit alone through the Word? We can't convince people to be right. We can't convince people and argue and debate and proof text and, and use evidences and archaeological things and, and, and logical debates. We cannot do that and expect people to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is given by God Himself. God sent the light into the world. Jesus says it in Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says it in Nicodemus that the judgment is this, that the light has come into the world, but that the people love the darkness because their works are evil. I mean, think about the totality of human religion. Think about the totality of Christian history. And it's wide. I've studied a lot of Christian history, but man, there's a lot of stuff that I've learned in the last few months that I didn't even know had happened. Even in a more contemporary sense. I've been reading a lot of synod documents lately. And I'm like, wow, there's some, there's some crazy stuff been going on. People have been debating and fighting and arguing and voting. And we voted. This is make it, makes it heresy. We voted it as heresy. <laughs> really? Is that what makes a heresy? No, what makes a heresy is that it doesn't agree with the word. No matter what we vote, we could all vote that it wasn't. It's still a heresy. But people have, throughout history, have come to a place where they have created their own rules and regulations of how they should worship God. The only way that they're supposed to do the Lord's table. The only way that they're supposed to sing and dance and do whatever it is they do. They emphasize certain aspects of certain little tall, small little pretexts of the Bible. And, and they've created not only a crazy religion, but they've created false gods and false Christ galore. And then they've all come together to agree that we are all one in these distinctions. And so now, or distinctives, now we're going to become an association. Now we're going to become a denomination. And nobody knows what they believe about anything because nobody's using the Bible for anything except for a pathway to a Sunday school class or for a sermon series that's topically driven anyway. Or to get to a point. People accuse me of avoiding issues, but when the Bible tells me what to preach next, I have to preach what's next. And that's the beauty of God driving the pulpit rather than James. Because I have a lot to say. I have a lot of thoughts and opinions 
and pastoral wisdom. Yes. And that's a joke. Don't look at me like, man, he's a little haughty. No, I'm, just, I'm joking. By the mercies of God, I don't destroy everything around me. No one could see. No one received him. No one could believe in his name. But those he gave the right to become the children of God who were born by the will of God, who were born by the Spirit, they could see. And what is it that they saw? They saw verse 16 and 17. And they understood that the fullness of all that God is is revealed in Christ. They saw... In John 1.16, from his fullness. See, our namesake is verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as, the only, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17 gives a further explanation as a contrast. And if you remember when I taught this, beloved, remember that it is to be understood as grace continually. So if we were to write it out in third grade, it would be grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Could you see? Could you see that in the third grade classroom? Oh, yeah. All right, everybody go right. And upon grace, comma, on the board. I don't even think they have boards in schools anymore. Nobody writes. I can see it. But that's what the scripture teaches, that it's grace upon grace. From his fullness, from the reality of all that he is, from his essence, from his person, from his being, we receive grace continually, forever, nonstop. See, God's grace is not this material. It's not this power. It's not this substance. I want you to hear me. God's grace is not some magical dust that he goes, and then it goes out on somebody and then they get grace. God's grace is not an exercise of His power. God's grace is a disposition of His essence. Revealed fully in Jesus Christ to His elect alone. Alone. Period. And this is a gospel center. Systematic theology behind all that is not necessarily gospel centered. But the doctrine from the Word of God is the good news of Jesus Christ. We have seen the fullness of the glory of God from the Son who is God, who makes Him known, who is full of grace and full of truth. And we have received all of His fullness from continual grace given to us. In other words, Christ has been given and that is the grace of God. Grace is not an operation of God. Grace is God Himself. And more specifically, in the context of the gospel, grace is Jesus Christ. Don't believe me? Let's look at the comparison. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You may not see that right off. You may not see it. But there is a night, pun intended, and day difference between these two things. There is a night and day difference between these two things. Moses was a servant of God. He was a mouthpiece. He was a vessel created for mercy to be used by God to proclaim His glory. And he wrote about, he wrote about Jesus. Remember John chapter 5? Where Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the scripture diligently because in them you think you have eternal life, but it's they that write about me. And then he says, I will not indict you before the Father, but Moses will, for he wrote about me. And I've, I've always had these questions coming. Well, where is it that Moses wrote of Jesus? Oh, I bet it's the, the prophet that is to come, for sure. But he wrote about him when he said in the beginning. 
He wrote about Jesus and he says in the beginning, and God separated the light from the darkness. God will separate the sheep from the goats. God will separate blindness and give sight. God will snatch us out of the domain of darkness into the light of the kingdom of his son. This is good news, beloved. Moses wrote about Jesus in every letter, in every sentence, in every story, in every narrative. Jesus is the point. And you don't have to stretch it. You don't have to look and say, well, how does this work? You just read it in light of the gospel, looking through the lens of grace upon grace upon grace, and you see exactly what's going on. Because these people that are written about in the book of Genesis are not doing well. (laughs) Things are not going well. They're not making good choices. Adam did not make good choices. And it's never changed. But God decreed before there ever was that Adam and Eve would be saved by being clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God. And he knew that they would always try to clothe themselves with their own righteousness to cover up their guilt. But the only way that guilt can be covered is that it is paid for. And the only way that can be paid for is that Christ is propitiation. How do we see that? By the mercies and the grace of God. Moses gave the law. Now think, put yourself back in Sinai. Go, to, go in your mind to Sinai and, go, and, 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 and then go in um, to Hebrews and look at the comparisons there. In Hebrews chapter 12. And we see that Paul says, we've not come to that which can be touched. We've not come to the tempest, to the, to the flailing of lightning and to the fire and to the voice of God whom, whose hearers beg not to ever hear it again. We've not come to where Moses came down the mountain who wasn't allowed to even look at the direction of where God was, but he made Moses, Moses says, I want to see you for all that you are. I want to look upon your face. I want to know you. God said, no one can see me and live. And he hid Moses behind a rock. And he says, I'm going to walk by. And the wind of the robe of my shadow, when I walk by, you can peek around and look. And you won't die. But he walked down the mountain and his face was glowing. And his face was glowing because of the presence of the fullness of all that God is. And the people said, please cover your face. We can't bear to look upon your face because you are exuding glory. And he's holding the tablets of stone which are shoved into the face of God's people and says, do this or die. You see? That's what the law did, right? Do this or die. I mean, let's let's put it where it is. Wear your seatbelt or pay the fine. Pay your taxes or lose your house. Do this or die. What does that show? The righteousness of God. How do we understand the law through the apostles? Guess what? Moses died disobediently. He still received grace upon grace. And guess what happened to the law when Moses died? It stood forever. Didn't need Moses to get it down the mountain. God could have sent it down himself. But God in all of his glory established this difference. The law was given and demands justice. No man from conception has ever been guilty, guiltless. Excuse me. No man from even conception has ever been guiltless. No man. What about Adam? He was created out of the dust. Adult. No man. No woman. And we, they have all, human, all humanity has been subject to death. Because that's what the law does. It judges rightly. It judges justly. It judges righteously. And the law is in direct opposition. Listen to me. The law is in direct opposition to grace. The opposite 
of grace is justice. Those are the, those are the terms. You receive justice or you receive grace. I even said that, I think, last week or the week before. And the crazy thing is, is some people say, well, I choose grace. It's not your choice. God's grace is sovereign. God's grace is free. Or better, God sovereignly and freely governs his own grace. He gives it to whom he wishes. The law was given through Moses. And we are all convicted by it. Romans chapter 3, I mean, we see, we see that there. The law is a shadow of the one to come. Because as we see what the law requires, and we see that there is no possible way, even before we were born, that we would be not subject to its justice. The only hope we have is either being snatched out of blindness to see the glory of God in the face of Christ grace upon grace or to come up with our own way of establishing ourselves righteous before the Father. And that's what most people do when they say they believe in Jesus Christ. Their belief in and of itself is the effectual agent of their redemption rather than the object to which God has pointed them. It was 2002 when I said for the first time you cannot have faith in your faith. Because faith in and of itself is not a thing for you to hold. You don't get it and go, oh, look at there, I got faith. No, faith is something that's exercised. Faith is something that's rested upon. Or faith in and of itself is, is resting. It has to have an object. What does faith look at? What does faith look to? The gospel of free and sovereign grace. Grace upon grace. Look at the contrast though. The law was given through Moses. The law came and it was given and it was pounded upon our heads and it was consequential. And it was death. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is manifested through the what? The giving of the Son, Jesus Christ the righteous, to be received by faith. Believing He is the fulfillment of all the righteousness of God. The law is a picture of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of our righteousness. See, this is what this is Paul Romans 3, by the way, was what I just quoted. But John does the same thing. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Remember when we talked in the very beginning and a little philosophically and a little bit, you know, trying to get you to think a little bit outside of our own boxes that we think in. We, we were so restricted in how we listen. That's just what we do as people. We just need to... So sometimes I say things that intentionally want to skirt the edge of sense. And then other times I'm just dumb as a bag of rocks. So... But we think in such a way that, you know, the gospel is this truth and that truth and that truth. Okay, touche, but it is Christ. He is the gospel. He is the righteousness of God. He is our justification. He is our propitiation. He is a person. He came. He is God Almighty, the creator of the world. And he took on a body and became a man as God. And so in this language here in verse 17, we see the difference there, not just that the law is a shadow and it's gone and it's condemning, but that grace and truth became. Jesus became grace and truth. He came. He purchased His people. And there is no getting away from that. There is nothing we can do to hide from His mercy. There is nothing that can stop Him from causing us to know this if we belong to Him. If Christ purchased you, you will know Him. 
Christ did not put the world on layaway and waiting for us to redeem the ticket. They go, oh, finally, in my possession. Christ purchased the people. Their sins are atoned for. God the Father cannot punish them. So they will believe. They will see. They will know. Jesus Christ came. He didn't give the rules of grace. He didn't give the teaching of grace. He gave Himself as grace. He gave Himself as life. The law is the bringer of death. Jesus Christ is the bringer of grace. He is grace. It's a big difference. And some people think they can see God through that which they can do. And they can see God through holy lives. And they can see God in all sorts of ways. But verse 18 tells us very clearly no one has ever seen Him. The only God who is at the Father's side. He who is with God. The Word that became flesh has made Him known. And beloved, we have seen His glory. And that glory... And seeing that glory is the foundation of our life together. Why are you reiterating the gospel for so long? Because I think we need to be reminded of it. Because when we're reminded of it, beloved, then we get the get-tos right. Then we understand how we're to handle diatrophies. Graciously. Patiently. We are not soldiers guarding the base of heaven. We are sheep grazing in the grass of glory. And we have a great shepherd, the word of God, who protects us at the gate. Grace and truth. And that is why we're here. That we may interact with one another through that lens, through that truth, through Christ. That we may love one another in Christ. We don't get to put conditions on how we love or if we love. Because as God's children, we are commanded to even love our enemies, those who hurt us, on equal standing as we love our other brother and sister in Christ. But we don't make God human in that sense. We don't put the grace of God on a scale of fairness. We just receive it as it is taught to us by His Word. And beloved, I don't know how else to say it, but if we're not going to love according to the gospel and judge according to the gospel, there's no purpose in life. No purpose at all. But because Christ has come, because that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light. He's shone in there. And now we look and we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is the theme of grace upon grace upon grace. So let us live and love accordingly. Don't take that lightly. Let's pray. Father, help us. We're too easily offended. But yet when we hear the gospel, we find unity. We find hope. We find comfort. We find peace. And Lord, you will, you will discipline your children who, who step out of line and who act the fool and who do knuckleheaded things. And we thank you for that, Lord, because we, we earnestly desire to please you. But Father, you've not given us the spirit of fear in our hearts. You've not given us the call to recompense or justice. But you have given us Jesus Christ who is our life. And you've given us grace upon grace. You've given us truth. You've given us the call that is great and high. And by faith alone do we stand pleasing to you because we believe in our faith that Christ is our righteousness. 
We believe in our faith that even on our worst days, we are acceptable to you because Christ's death paid the penalty of our sin. Therefore, Lord, we are able to live. We are able to love. We're able to walk this earth together as a people and giving you the glory for keeping us in unity. But, Father, your will be done. I have so many things that I pray for all the time, Lord. I'm obsessed with so many burdens. Father, help me to rest, to know that you alone have the outcome secure. But, Father, also give us the wisdom to know our part. Give us the wisdom to pray and to wait. Give us the wisdom to know that we cannot ask anything of you if we do not do the basics of what you've told us. And we don't, and we don't do the basics of what you've shown us. But even then, Father, we're not going to be lost. We'll just be tossed around by the waves until such time as you grant us the grace to stand up on Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.